Knowing the headlines isn't always enough. Sometimes you need to talk about it. For stimulating conversation on the day's hot topics, this is your station. This is your show, The Ryan Jesperson Show, on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. A good Thursday morning to you. It's 9.06. In just a moment, we will officially welcome Lori Hahn to the Ched studio, former member of Parliament uh, for Edmonton Centre through three terms. It sounds to me like he might be busier now than he was when he was representing constituents here in Edmonton. We'll take some time in the 9.30 half-hour block to get to some of your comments. Many of you are already in touch with the show to 6.30, 6.30. Your take on this whole, well, do you call it a dispute? Let's let's say it's a, it's a lack of agreement at this point between Apple, the most valuable corporation in the world, and the FBI. Essentially, the FBI has asked Apple to provide them with software that will allow them in, in the words of Apple CEO Tim Cook, through the back door of an iPhone that's encrypted, that's protected right now, one of those San Bernardino shooters. As FBI investigators try to crack that phone's security code, once they hit a certain number of attempts, the data will wipe itself off that phone. The FBI wants Apple's help. Apple says we love our country, we love democracy, but this is a no-go for us. Curious for your take on that. In the 10 o'clock hour, author Maria Konnikova joins us. Her new book, The Confidence Game, takes a look at how con artists manage to dupe us time and time again, whether it's Bernie Madoff or Jim Baker. She even cites Lance Armstrong. What is it about the confidence game that allows people to manipulate us? In the 11 o'clock hour, as you heard yesterday on this show, in fact, live horse racing will see its last year here in Edmonton after more than a hundred seasons of horse racing. We'll hit this from a few different angles. Shirley McClellan, the CEO of Horse Racing Alberta, plus a couple of people who I know live and breathe horse racing. We'll talk to Kathy Butkovic, who's a horse trainer, and David Wilberg, whose family owns horses out in Vancouver. He himself, a reporter in Saskatchewan, travels to Edmonton to watch the races. He told me he might still be too furious to talk by the time 11.20 rolls around. I said, perfect. And after 11.30, we'll talk to Brad Lamb. He's Toronto's condo king. Big plans to build a tower here in Edmonton. He says, for right now, those plans are on hold. He says the situation in Alberta right now, worse than 2008. He's optimistic the towers will get built at some point, but just not right now. We'll talk to Brad Lamb. Kicking off the show this morning, former member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre, Laurie Hahn. It's fabulous to see you. Ryan, great to be here. Thanks. Ryan Hall just popped his head in and said, my, oh, my, the haircut. <laughs> You're clean shaven. This looks like you back, uh, I'm guessing, maybe in your military days. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a throwback. Well, we've got a very, very good friend who's fighting cancer for the third time. And we were in Tucson a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, you know, it's my one little thing I can do to show support for her and shaved it off. It'll, it'll grow back. And uh, I'm having a heck of a lot easier time than she is. A lot of things I'd like to talk to you about today, Mr. Hahn, uh, including your take on what went down, not just in the federal election back in October, but in your former riding. It's been an interesting riding. Uh, people that have lived there for quite some time will know the name uh, Steve Poprosky, who held that seat for the Conservatives in the 60s and 70s. Of course, former Deputy PM Anne McClellan held it for the Liberals uh, prior to your tenure, and then now it's back in the hands of the Liberals. Uh, Randy Boisneau there. What's your take on what went down, not just in Edmonton Centre, but across the country. Well, well, writ large, and the same thing happened in the Alberta provincial election. 
when people get tired for whatever reason of, of whoever's there, uh, you know, when the mantra "time for change" takes hold, it simply becomes unstoppable, and you just you know get out of the way. If you're in a close riding like Edmonton Center was going to be, you're you're toast. And and that's basically what happened when the in in this riding when the NDP. Uh, vote basically collapsed. NDPers weren't going to come to the Conservatives. They were going to go to the Liberals. So it was not unpredictable. I wasn't surprised at the Liberal majority. I was surprised at the size of the majority. But again, that goes back to the time for change. It just becomes a tidal wave and uh, get out of the way. Are you telling me you think that if had you not decided to retire, had you run again, you think you may have lost? Oh, I, I, I don't know. You're, you always go in to win, and, and I think I had a pretty good run there for 10 years, but, you know, that's something you can speculate on, and, and I'm just not going to go there. We had a spectacular candidate in uh, in James Cumming. Um, you know, I had to congratulate Randy Boisenau, because uh, he, he won, and, and, and there you go, and he'll, he'll serve constituents well, I hope. Um, and if he needs help, uh, I'm, I'm there to help him. You did an interesting interview with the CBC back in October where you <laughs> suggested that Stephen Harper was both an asset and a liability for the Conservatives. Well, yeah, it, yeah Stephen Harper's probably the smartest man I've ever met doesn't mean on every day, on every issue. Uh, and I think, you know, when you've been there for um, for 10 years, you know, people, regardless of who you are, people start to look around and say, well, is there something else out there? So he was our, you know, best communicator most of the time. He was certainly, as I said, the smartest guy I've ever met. Uh, but when that mantra for change, you know, he, he had a, a reputation or a, or a media-imposed thing of, of meanness and so on. And he was, he was tough. You know, and I took him on a number of times, privately, obviously, uh, and I would win a couple, and I would lose lose more. Uh, but he would he would listen, and he would. And I've seen him change his mind under the pressure of, of enough uh, caucus members. But you better have your stuff together. If you don't have your stuff together, well, he'll eat you alive, and that's the way it should be. Hmm. You, you are you keeping an eye at all on provincial politics? Is that oh, yeah. something that interests you? Are, are, do you have a take on what the play should be moving forward with the small C conservatives in Alberta, both the Wild Rose yep. Party and the PCs? Well, small C's need to get together uh, under a current name, under a new name, whatever, but it needs to come from the grassroots up. Uh, if we don't, and clearly I'm, I'm biased, uh, but if they don't get it together, then we may be stuck, and again, that's my biased word, stuck with the with the NDP for, for quite some time. And I so you would look to thing. unify the parties? Yes. Yeah. The reason why I ask is you had referenced in, in that interview with the CBC, you said things like the niqab, which became a sideshow. Mm-hmm. You said, I think uh, all we did with that was we alienated some softer support and mm-hmm. we steeled the resolves of the Harper haters yeah. that were out there. And I'd be curious to know your take on how a small C conservative coalition, provincially speaking, would reach out to the grabbable voters, so to speak. Well, I'm not sure it's a small C coalition. I think it's all the small C's coming together. And saying okay, and, and I've been chatting as a b- bunch of other people have, and I think they need to do something like we did federally, and that's sit down, work out about fifteen or so principles, which I think that was the number we did federally. Say, look, here's the things we can agree on, and move forward on. Let's set the difficult ones aside, and let's move forward with with those. And you'll lose some on on both ends of of the spectrum. We'd lose just if you want to say Wild Rose and PC, we would lose some PCers on one side, we'd lose some Wild Roses on the other side, just like we did federally with the old. Uh, PCs federally and uh, and alliance folks, but what came out of it was something strong and effective, gave us good government in my view for for ten years, uh, and it's going to be around for a long time. And I think we need to 
move towards that provincially in some manner, but it's going to come from the grassroots. It's not going to come from top down. January 2016, a huge month for you. You named uh, to Edmonton's police commission. You've also been named an honorary colonel with the 401 Tactical Fighter Squadron out of Cold Lake, and it was really neat to see you sworn in actually in Cold yep. Lake. I know you've been no, in, in Kuwait, actually. Oh, you were sworn in in Kuwait. Yep. Oh, pardon me. Uh, that's even cooler. It was. <laughs> you've spent quite a bit of time over there, and, and and I'm not sure if everybody knows this, but you're actually a retired fighter pilot yourself, mm-hmm. one of the first Canadians, as I understand it, to fly a CF-18. First one checked out in the airplane by by one day but I was the first. Yeah, very cool. So I, I, I already know, uh, generally speaking, what you're going to say about Monday. Mm-hmm. Monday is the deadline uh, where Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, says Canadian fighter pilots will, will cease operations, bombing missions over Iraq and Syria. Why do you believe this is the wrong move? Well, first of all, it's already happened. It happened on the 15th. Uh, not, you know, he said the deadline is 22nd. They've already stopped that uh, mission. Now, I was just there. And watching them, uh, watching them operate, and they're extremely effective. And if we're going to do, you know, I'm, I'm completely in support of the uh, increased training mission. I said that, you know, before it happened. I'm completely in favor of, of humanitarian, more humanitarian aid. But you can't take away the other part of it. When he says he, he wants to do everything to combat ISIS, well, that means combat. And in our mission uh, text, that means means fighters, and they were extremely effective over there. And the government has been misleading Canadians on sort of the numbers they give for effectiveness. They, they say, well, we're only dropping 2% of the bombs. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but for a couple of reasons, you know, we have the by far the strictest rules of engagement about uh, minimizing or eliminating civilian casualties. So we bring back the bombs more than half the time. Because unless you're 100% sure, and you're never 100%, that you're not going to hurt something you don't want to hurt, then they'll, they'll, they'll bring them home. They're extremely professional. The other aspect is we've got 4% of the fighter assets in theater, or did, and we were holding 10% of the vulnerability periods. And a vulnerability period is where you've got fighters in the air, overhead, with weapons ready to deploy. Now, even if we don't deploy them, ISIS knows we're there, and that does restrict their ability to move. And if they can't move, they can't do some of the bad things they do. And when they do drop, they are devastatingly accurate. And I saw enough videos over there, and I have enough experience with that to know that you know, they can be so surgical with a very, very small weapon. You know, do you want it to go into the door of the building or the window of the building? So they were extremely effective. And taking that away, I think, is, is very much the wrong move. It's based on ideology. It's not based on logic or understanding. And I don't think he understands what actually goes on over there. Uh, it's not based on anything other than, other than ideology. Our allies want us there. Uh, they've said that clearly. Canadian public uh, is on side with us being there with fighters. So I think it's just a, it's a bad move all around. Totally support the other things they're doing and, and wrapping it up. It's going to make the mission in significantly more hazardous for, for Canadians. The type of threat hasn't changed, but the volume of threat has certainly changed when we put that many people on the ground. Yeah, you know, on this show, and, and I've made this commitment to my listeners, I, I try to have it be an, an open-minded show, a show that, that lives in the gray areas, so to speak. It's not a liberal show, it's not a conservative show, or any other type of show along those partisan lines. But on this file, on this one, when the Prime Minister says that his decision to pull the fighter jets out represents what Canada is all about, I have to say, nonsense. I don't think so. That's I don't nonsense. get that sense. And on this sense, I believe, and I've gone on record saying, I think that it's it's a bad move by the PM. It, it, it is. And he's hearkening back to the, the, the fanciful days of Blue Beret peacekeeping. And if you want to go back far enough and talk about Lester Pearson, Lester Pearson you know, was deemed sort of the father of peacekeeping. But Lester Pearson said, you've got to have force to back it up. People like ISIS sure as heck do not respect Blue Berets at all. And, and it's, you know, peacekeeping in, in its own right was, was a valuable, good mission. But unless there's actual peace to keep, unless there's 
two sides that actually want you in the middle, like Cyprus, for example, there is no such thing as, as peacekeeping. And it's, it's a myth. And the reason they say, well, look at Bangladesh, they're, they're providing all these peacekeepers, they're getting paid by the UN. That's those soldiers' salaries, is being paid to be peacekeepers. That's not Canada's boat. We're about doing the right thing, even if the right thing is tough. And we did that in, in um, I mean, the Boer War, First World War, Second World War, Korea, the peacekeeping missions that we did, Afghanistan, uh, Libya. You know, there's a whole bunch of things where Canada has stood up. We're not a nation of peacekeepers. We are when there's peace to keep, but we're also a nation of warriors, and we've proven that in, in the, uh, on the right occasions in the right way. And this is another one where we, we should be doing the same thing. There will actually be more Canadian troops, I think most people know this, on the ground now than previous when mm -hmm. the fighter jets were there. Do you believe that these troops could be placed in more danger because the fighters are gone? Uh, well, short answer is yes. Now, you know, our fighters were part of a obviously much larger coalition of fighters. It's not necessarily Canadian fighters supporting Canadian troops all the time. But that has happened. There's uh, there's other forces out there, obviously Americans and Brits and, and so on. But the fact is we're taking away an element of what was there to protect our folks and the other folks. And we're putting you know, you know, a significant, significantly larger number of Canadian troops on the ground. Uh, we say it's non-combat. Well, you know, there's a pretty fine line. If you're, if you're up there advising and assisting and you're taking fire and you're firing back, well, that's kind of combat to me. And if there's less capacity to support that from the air, then it does increase the danger. When you've got that many more people on the ground in that dangerous situation, there is more potential. You were very outspoken in the, in the debate in the House of Commons uh, surrounding the Conservatives' Bill C-51 about the role that corporations should play when it comes to freedom of information uh, in the goal uh, of prevention of terrorist activity. I'm curious to know your take on Apple versus the FBI. That's where we'll kick off with Lori Hahn right after this quick break. On Lori Hahn, our guest in studio, former member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre, honorary colonel for 401 Tactical Fighter Squadron, also uh, a board member of the Glen Rose Rehabilitation Hospital Foundation, also a member of the Edmonton Police Commission. Are you busier now than you were when you were representing I, the Edmonton Centre? In, in many ways I am, but I'm not traveling back and forth across the country twice a week, which gives me time to do those things and to play with my two-year-old granddaughter, which is absolutely the best. That was that was a priority for you, wasn't it, you in, in, in your retirement from politics? Uh, you were quite outspoken in the House of Commons as uh, members of the NDP had cited uh, some comments from high-tech business owners that were critical of the Conservative government's anti-terrorism bill C-51. You said, I would suggest if websites providing content, hosting services, or other businesses are profiting from the dispersal of horrific material, they should seriously reconsider their business model and their lack of commitment to the value that binds us as Canadians. Most people by now are familiar with uh, a bit of a battle underway right now. Uh, the FBI wants Apple, the most valuable corporation in the world, to give them a back door uh, to, to crack essentially the operating system of a phone that was owned by one of the San Bernardino shooters. Apple has said we respect democracy, we love our country, but we're not going to do this. What should Apple do? Well, I think, you know, there's always a fine line between security and, uh, and, and, and privacy. In, in my view, and I'm, you know, obviously a little right of center, security should should trump that. But uh, there needs to be a process. There needs to be an oversight on that. You know, people are comfortable with uh, wiretaps, you know, which are done with with a warrant under judicial oversight and so on to obviously pay attention to bad guys. But they don't seem to be okay with that when it comes to uh, this kind of stuff. And it's exactly the same process. The C-51 process was precisely the same. This is a little bit different. Uh, and I think you got to be a little bit careful. I think that 
uh, Apple, you know, I'd be if I was Apple, I'd be reluctant to just say here it is. Right. Go play with it. Uh, if I were Apple, I would say, you know, let's f have the same kind of process. If you've got a reason to believe that we need you need access to that guy's phone, then then come and explain to a judge, da 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 da, you know, why that is, and and go for it. Apple should have because of their size, and it will affect them probably more than anybody else. They should have an, an organization within their organization that this is our job. This is our our job is to help the FBI or whoever when this situation comes up with the appropriate judicial oversight and and authorization to go in and do that, not just say you know. And there's obviously some more subtleties, I think, that, that haven't come out yet about the conversations between the FBI and Apple. And I'm sure Apple would do the right the right thing in that case. Mm. Yeah, we'll be talking about this more on this show uh, after the 10.30 news, and we'll be taking people's comments on it. I, I think that people have pointed out that there is some process in place where the FBI could secure a warrant to gain access to the material on that phone, to the information on that phone. What they want is, is to fast-track it, essentially. And we've had the conversation on the show before as well. Should police, should investigators have access to, to uh, beyond past people's internet security if it could lead to, say, an arrest on child pornography charges, who's going to argue against yeah. cracking down I, I, on pornographers? Yeah, I, I but think it sets the a precedent. They, they should have access, but it needs to be under supervision. And you know, you can't just. I mean, I wouldn't. You know, as right wing as I might be, I wouldn't just hand the FBI or anybody else say, "Look, here's here's the software." Go knock yourself out. I, I you know, I'd, I'd be uncomfortable with that. You've been named to Edmonton's police commission along with two other new commissioners this year, just about a month ago. Mm -hmm. What do you perceive your role to be there, and what will be some of your priorities? Well, I've always been impressed with the Edmonton Police Service, and the role of the police commission is to provide oversight, uh, to provide some policy guidance. Technically, we hire the the chief. I mean, we are responsible to city council, uh, and obviously the, the EPS is responsible to the city council through the commission. Uh, they're a great organization. Uh, I've known the chief for, for quite a long time. Uh, it was kind of a natural for me, and we've talked about it, some senior members of the force and myself for actually several years, about when I'm available, you know, I would like to like to do this. Our aim, the, the commission's aim, and the police service's aim is to make Edmonton the safest, biggest, safest large city in Canada through, in our case as a commission, through effective supervision, in their case through obviously effective policing and investigative excellence and traffic safety and, and all the things that make the police force work. We don't tell the EPS how to, how to be police officers, but we do provide oversight uh, and guidance. Uh, and budgeting obviously is a huge issue in, in any city, any, any policing. That's a very big issue in, in Edmonton. So we provide some, some support and guidance for that. We don't tell them how to do the job. We try to give them not cover, but supervision and oversight to, to make sure that they've got the, uh, the support to do their job. I guess probably one of the biggest issues uh, based on how much coverage it gets is the budget, like mm -hmm. you brought up, and as Edmonton continues to grow out, police resources are strained. Well, it's a challenge because Edmonton proper is whatever, 750,000 people or so. The rest of it brings it up to about, to about a million. Uh, but Edmonton City's budget, uh, the police budget, is based on the 750,000. There's a whole lot of people using the EPS services, when I say using or abusing, uh, customers of, uh, that we're not, uh, we're not funded for. So it's, it's a challenge, and I think we've got some work to do uh, with the provincial government, uh, and perhaps the federal government, I think it's more provincial, to say we need to kind of look at how the grants, how the policing grants are structured to say if the work is happening within the city of Edmonton, 
then maybe the city of Edmonton needs more of those grants. And the mayor's made the argument oftentimes, especially when the economy dips, many people will congregate to the larger cities like Edmonton. So we inherit some of the issues that wouldn't be there otherwise. Why is your role on the board at the Glenrose Rehabilitation Hospital Foundation so important to you? Well, I got involved with them 10 years ago, basically through Afghanistan, when folks started coming back in various states of mental and physical disarray. And and I, I knew some of them. I know some of them s- still. And the Glenrose does such a wonderful job of rehab. They are the gold standard for physical and mental rehab, certainly in Canada, probably in North America, and, and maybe beyond. They just—they're so caring. They're so professional. That's another one that they and I have been talking about. Me being on their board for a number of years, actually, uh, you know, just sort of waiting for me to leave leave politics. So they just do great work for me. It fills a veteran square. It fills a, a senior square. It fills a kids square. It fills a healthcare square. There's just so many things that they're involved with, and so effectively that it, for me it was just a natural. Thanks for hanging out with us this morning. My pleasure. And I haven't had a chance to say this to your face, but you were my member of Parliament as a representative <laughs> for Edmonton Centre, so thank you for your well, service I appreciate your as well. Votes, I think. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Laurie Hahn. If you have a comment you'd like to submit based on what you've heard, you can text us to 630-630. Headlines coming right up. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Our thanks to Laurie Hahn. Always a pleasure to connect. Just a good dude. Many of you have been in touch with the show already in advance of us even soliciting your opinions on Apple versus the FBI, which is great. It indicates to me you get the sense that this is a forum where we'll talk about things that deserve to be talked about, where we'll tackle the issues in the gray areas and hash it out. So before I get to your comments, I've been trying to decide how much to read from Apple CEO Tim Cook's letter uh, released yesterday. An open release. As a matter of fact, he put it out late Tuesday. And I think it would be beneficial to read the entire thing. So bear with me. If you have not yet read it, here it is from Apple CEO Tim Cook. A message to our customers. The United States government has demanded that Apple take an unprecedented step which threatens the security of our customers. We oppose this order, which has implications far beyond the legal case at hand. This moment calls for public discussion, and we want our customers and people around the country to understand what is at stake. Smartphones led by iPhone have become an essential part of our lives. People use them to store an incredible amount of personal information, from private conversations to our photos, our music, our notes, our calendars, our contacts, our financial information, our health data, even where we've been and where we are going. All that information needs to be protected from hackers and criminals who want to access it, steal it, and use it without our knowledge or permission. Customers expect Apple and other tech companies to do everything in our power to protect their personal information. And at Apple, we are deeply committed to safeguarding their data. Compromising the security of our personal information can ultimately put our personal safety at risk. That is why encryption has become so important to all of us. For many years, we've used encryption to protect our customers' personal data because we believe it's the only way to keep their information safe. We even have put that data out of our own reach because we believe the contents of your iPhone are none of our business. We were shocked and outraged by the deadly act of terrorism in San Bernardino last December. We mourn the loss of life and we want justice for all those whose lives were affected. The FBI asked us for help in the days following the attack and we have worked hard to support the government's efforts to solve this horrible crime. We have no sympathy for terrorists. When the FBI requested data in our possession, we have provided it. Apple complies with valid subpoenas and search warrants as we have in the San Bernardino case. 
We have also made Apple engineers available to advise the FBI, and we've offered our best ideas on a number of investigative options at their disposal. We have great respect for the professionals at the FBI, and we believe their intentions are good. Up to this point, we've done everything that is both within our power and within the law to help them. But now the U.S. government has asked us for something we simply do not have and something we consider too dangerous to create. They have asked us to build a back door to the iPhone. Specifically, the FBI wants us to make a new version of the iPhone operating system, circumventing several important security features, and they want us to install it on an iPhone recovered during their investigation. In the wrong hands, this software, which does not exist today, would have the potential to unlock any iPhone in someone's physical possession. The FBI may use different words to describe this tool, but make no mistake, building a version of iOS, the operating system, that bypasses security in this way would undeniably create a backdoor. And while the government may argue that its use would be limited to this case, there is no way to guarantee such control. Some would argue that building a backdoor for just one iPhone is a simple, clean-cut solution, but it ignores both the basics of digital security and the significance of what the government is demanding in this case. In today's digital world, the key to an encrypted system is a piece of information that unlocks the data, and it is only as secure as the protections around it. Once the information is known or a way to bypass the code is revealed, the encryption can be defeated by anyone with that knowledge. The government suggests this tool could only be used once on one phone, but that's simply not true. Once created, the technique could be used over and over again on any number of devices. In the physical world, it would be the equivalent of a master key, capable of opening hundreds of millions of locks, from restaurants and banks to stores and homes. No reasonable person would find that acceptable. The government is asking Apple to hack our own users and undermine decades of security advancements that protect our customers, including tens of millions of American citizens, from sophisticated hackers and cyber criminals. The same engineers who built strong encryption into the iPhone to protect our users would ironically be ordered to weaken those protections and make our users less safe. We can find no precedent for an American company being forced to expose its customers to a greater risk of attack. For years, cryptologists and national security experts have been warning against weakening encryption. Doing so would hurt only the well-meaning and law-abiding citizens who rely on companies like Apple to protect their data. Criminals and bad actors will still encrypt using tools that are readily available to them. Now, rather than asking for legislative action through Congress, the FBI is proposing an unprecedented use of the All Writs Act of 1789 to justify expanding its authority. The government would have us remove security features and add new capabilities to the operating system, allowing a passcode to be input electronically. This would make it easier to unlock an iPhone by brute force, trying thousands or millions of combinations with the speed of a modern computer. The implications of the government's demands are chilling. If the government can use the All Writs Act to make it easier to unlock your iPhone, it would have the power to reach into anyone's device to capture their data. The government could extend this breach of privacy and demand that Apple build surveillance software to intercept your messages, access your health records or financial data, track your location, or even access your phone's microphone or camera without your knowledge. Opposing this order is not something we take lightly. We feel we must speak up in the face of what we see as an overreach by the U.S. government. 
We are challenging the FBI's demands with the deepest respect for American democracy and a love of our country. We believe it would be in the best interest of everyone to step back and consider the implications. While we believe the FBI's intentions are good, it would be wrong for the government to force us to build a backdoor into our products. And ultimately, we fear that this demand would undermine the very freedoms and liberty our government is meant to protect. That from Apple CEO Tim Cook. So who's right here? Bob Layton dedicated his editorial to this this morning, and he kicked off with the lead line, have you ever been in a position where you've had to decide between something, where you've had to make either the right decision or the correct decision? And I don't know if Bob meant to paint himself into a corner, but by putting it out that way, he implies that, and Bob says that Apple should build the back door. So does Lori Hahn. He says with judicial oversight on a one-off scenario. Tim Cook addressed that. But Bob essentially suggests that either it's the right decision for Apple to comply, which would mean it's the incorrect decision as well, or he's saying it's the correct decision for Apple to make, but it's just not right. What do you think? We'll get to the text line right after this. We're talking Apple versus the FBI. If you're just joining us, the FBI wants Apple to create a a new form of software that'll uh, allow them a backdoor to get past encryption, specifically on the iPhone of one of the San Bernardino shooters. But as Apple CEO Tim Cook laid out in a letter we just read to you, and if you'd like to read the complete letter, you can find it on my Facebook page. I tweeted it out yesterday as well. He says this isn't a one-off. Once the technology's there, once it's in the hands of the FBI, nobody's personal data is safe anymore. A listener here, Sarah, says Apple needs to open the door. Ethics trump an individual's rights when he or she has committed or has done such a terrible act. Well, sure, but we're not talking about the rights of the San Bernardino killer. We're talking about the rights of every single person that has an Apple product. We're talking privacy rights. This is a precedent-setting measure. Listener here, this is Topher. Good morning to you. Says, I agree 100% with Apple, even though I hate the company and I don't use their phone. It's funny it takes this to finally draw attention to this issue. Tover says, I won't pretend to know much about data or encryption because I don't, but I've read articles or papers here and there. He says, this thing that everyone's so excited for, it's a dangerous and slippery slope. It's funny how many people use Google without a second thought to its ties with the NSA and the FBI, even the FTC, the Trade Commission. He says, if you believe the hype, they are the granddaddy of all the internet boogie monsters. If anyone's interested in this stuff, he says, I suggest reading some of Graham Cluley and Troy Hunt's work. They're outstanding. That from Topher. Marty says, first off, I can't believe people would put all that information on a phone. Uh, That being said, after hearing that letter from Apple, I have to agree with Apple as long as what's in that letter is true. Yeah, Marty, I mean, I don't know about you. My iPhone, my iPhone is, 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 I try to keep it as protected as possible. I'm not a super techie, but it's because everything is on there. 
everything is on the, uh, these days on your phone, your banking information, like it said, where you've been, who your contacts are, passwords. I mean, if someone was able to crack your phone, it's not about, oh, does a, you know, does a, does a racy photo that you sent your spouse or partner make it onto Twitter? And that's one implication for some people, you know, Anthony Weiner, but for most people, we're not concerned about nude photos getting out. We're concerned about a government agency having access to all of our information. You've heard the name Edward Snowden. I mean, how familiar are you with why he is still in exile? How familiar are you with the explosiveness of the data that he leaked back in June 2013? You remember when the Guardian newspaper reported that the U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, was collecting the telephone records of tens of millions of Americans? The Guardian published a secret court order directing Verizon, you know Verizon, a phone company down in the States, to hand over all of its telephone data to the NSA on an ongoing daily basis. Not telephone data from a suspect in a bombing. Not telephone data for Verizon customers that were on a watch list. All telephone data on an ongoing daily basis. The Washington Post picked up on that and reported that the NSA tapped directly into the servers of nine internet firms, including Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo, to track online communication in a surveillance program known as PRISM. RS says, hey, maybe this is a wake-up call for us to be less dependent on our phones to take a step back. Stephen says it's not up to Apple. The FBI's job is the security of the United States. That comes first. Linking the people involved will save lives. And if the FBI wants to come after you, they will. He says, I'm not worried that the FBI looking into my phone, but I do worry about terrorism. Bill says, you know what? I thought Apple should do it. But after hearing that letter from Tim Cook, I've totally changed my mind. I agree with Apple. Another listener says, you know, I'm not an Apple owner, nor have I ever owned an Apple product, but I applaud them for protecting their customers. Privacy is a big deal for me. I may have to buy one for my next phone. Listener here out of Hay Lakes references Bob Layton's editorial this morning, says the right decision versus the correct decision. Think of it this way. In school, you'd have a mathematical equation. If you provide the answer and it's the right answer, you got the answer right. But if the work to get that answer was wrong, then it wasn't correct. The correct answer is simply for Apple to decrypt the phone in question and give it to the FBI with absolutely nothing more. This does provide the correct outcome with the correct course of action. And Tim Cook referenced this. He says, when the FBI requested data in our possession, we have provided it. We've complied with subpoenas. We've complied with search warrants. We've even made Apple engineers available to advise the FBI. I liked his reference when he spoke about a master key. At our home, we've invested, and actually I can't even say we, it was a a fabulously generous housewarming gift from my parents, in a specific type of deadbolt lock that's the best on the market. The best deadbolt lock on the market. And we hold these keys with confidence. Now, how would I feel if I found out that that lock company had granted the Edmonton Police Service and the RCMP and CSIS with master keys to all of those locks that that company manufactured? Now, I know someone right now is audibly saying as you're driving down the road listening to Chad, hey, Ryan, if you have nothing to hide, you shouldn't worry about it. But that's a bit of an ostrich approach to this. That's a bit of a head in the sand approach to this. If you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about. 
We'll fit in the last break of the half hour. I see we've got some callers on hold. A lot of text messages on this as well. We've also left the 1030 block open for this. We'll be right back. Apple versus the FBI. Who's in the right here and what should Apple's play be? On the phone lines, Brian's been holding the line. Brian, what's your take on this? Hi, Ryan. Thanks very much. Um, I think it's a hugely slippery slope to be going down for allowing backdoors. The NSA's already been caught red-handed working with people that make wire or routers for your home and other such devices. Um, the thing about backdoors is they can be used by everyone, mm-hmm. not just, and people make basic tools that somebody like you and I could download. So all you have to do is press a couple buttons and you could have similar access. Um, that data for the, um, that the NSA is requesting for the backdoor, all those phones are the same. You can use them on one, you can use them on all of them. Um, you know, there's, I agree with protecting um, our country and everything else, but to run security out of fear, uh, I think is a bit of a foolish way to go about things. Because then you might as well hand over the keys to everything and um, remove all of our um, privacy uh, rights that we should have. Yeah, Brian, thanks for the call. I really appreciate that take. Daily Dell, what's your take on this? Well, you know what? Originally, when I heard the story, I was like, well, what's the problem with Apple? And then when I actually read into it, I realized it's not a matter of we have a warrant, we want you to crack this phone. It's a matter of we have a warrant, we want you to create specific software so we can crack any phone. Yep. And I I belong to a couple chat boards uh, with uh, American Police Services, and I talk to these cops all the time, and they all agree. Do not let the FBI have this, because as soon as anything goes to the FBI and the FBI starts using it, regular police departments and sheriff's departments and state troopers get access to the same technology. So you're going to have cops who are already abusing NSA equipment, such as Stingers, uh, mobile uh, cell phone sites that they can set up and it'll act like a cell tower, and they can intercept anybody's cell phone calls and record them. Yeah, and, and Dell, it's not just police agencies. It could be hackers and cyber criminals, too. Exactly. And uh, I was actually, when I started talking to these cops last night about this, they all said, don't. Oh, hell no. Apple should not do this. Give them the phone. Let them crack it. Let them hand the phone back to you. Yeah, but thanks. do not make the technology for this because everyone seems to forget, oh, anti-terrorism, you're not doing anything wrong. If it's there, this government may not do anything with it. But who says what the next one will do with it or yep. the next one after that? You bet. I appreciate the call, Dell. Thanks very much. Bob, I've got 45 seconds. you got last word, at least for this half hour. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. Hello? You bet. You're on the air. Yeah, this is symptomatic of a, a larger picture since 9-11 of the constant and systematic erosion of rights and freedoms, uh, whether in this, indeed, all over the world, whether it's uh, this or the erosion of uh, the rights to privacy, rights of uh, assembly, rights of religion, for God's sake, uh, under the guise of fear of terrorism. Uh, it's time that uh, the, the public starts pushing back against the government and saying we do have inalienable and guaranteed rights. Yeah, Bob, you know what? I think you make a very good point, and you're right. This is a big-picture issue. We'll pick this up again at 10.30. Headlines coming right up. Then the author of The Confidence Game, Why Do We Get Conned?